Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. If you would go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, it's so good to be with you guys tonight. I love my Thursday night crew, and if you're joining us online, we want to welcome you as well. Um, You guys are the double dippers. Some of you are the triple dippers. Some of you come to ladies' Bible study, you go to men's Bible study, you've got a small group. Some of you are quadruple dippers. Um, and I love how you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, let me add, I'm so grateful to welcome Ashley to the stage. Um, she is on loan from Coast Hills Church. Uh, she led two of our worship songs tonight. So would you just welcome her one more time? So grateful for uh, just the camaraderie that we share in the gospel. Um, as well, I also want to thank you for your generosity. We've got a team that is out in El Salvador right now, and we are ministering to pastors from around Central and South America. We've gathered them all in El Salvador, and we are ministering to them. And I say we is because of your generosity that we are able not only to do work here in the South Bay area, but around the world. And so I just want to thank the Lord for all of you and how faithful you are to the giving uh, of to, of giving of yours uh, sacrificially for the sake of the gospel. So God bless you guys. Philippians chapter 4, as we continue our study, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer to prepare our hearts. Our Father, we are so thankful for Thursday nights. We're thankful that we can sit in a church, air-conditioned, in a cushioned seat, to learn the Word of God. What a gift. And I'm so thankful for those that are not taking that gift for granted, but hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So Lord, I pray that as we study Philippians chapter 4, that you would give us the grace to hear, spiritual ears to understand and grasp how we can deal with the problems that we might find with people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As a matter of review for just a moment... Paul is writing a thank you letter to the church of Philippi. And you've got to remember that he loves this church so dearly. Look at Philippians chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I mean, how many times can he get across the point, I am in love with you. And while he's writing this thank you letter... He uses the opportunity to disciple them on a conduct that is worthy of the gospel. If you remember that phrase all the way from Philippians chapter 1. And in this conduct, he reminds them that they are citizens of heaven. And as a citizen of heaven, there is a way to conduct yourself. There's a way for us to conduct ourselves if we're really citizens of heaven. And that conduct should reflect our King of Kings. 
If we're subjects of the king and we're being conformed into his image, then we want to reflect our king much like the moon reflects the light of the sun. Well, Paul lets us know in Philippians chapter 2 that our king of kings is affectionate. He's comforting. He's merciful. He's humble. He's obedient even to the point of death to the Father, no matter the cost. Jesus is our standard bearer of what a citizen of heaven looks like. Now, Paul takes a lot of time to discuss this conduct because there's a problem in the church between two people. Philippians chapter 1, 2, and 3 is basically setting us up or setting this church up, setting Christians up, to deal and get to the issue that is found in Philippians chapter 4. Now, Philippians chapter 3 helps us understand what's going on, what's the exact problem that's happening. There's some kind of doctrinal debate that's happening between these two people. So what Paul does is he takes the time to deal with teaching sound doctrine. That's all of chapter 3. So he taught us last week about the Judaizers and how they wanted to bring Judaism into Christianity. And we talked about last week about the very fact that they wanted people to come to Christ and then do something Jewish. It was Jesus and. It was very legalistic. But he also dealt with another doctrine. These were the Gnostics. Quite different than the Judaizers. They believed that the flesh was corrupt and the spirit was absolutely pure. So because of that, you could live however you wanted to live. If you wanted to get drunk, get drunk. If you want to be sexually immoral, be sexually immoral. Because, well, the flesh is corrupt. So let the flesh do whatever it wants to do. But your spirit is pure. And as long as you know that, you'll go to heaven. Well, Paul deals with the Gnostics and says this isn't true. And he teaches sound doctrine. Now, what's interesting? He doesn't waste any time in debate. He's not going back and forth with these guys. He simply teaches the truth. And let me tell you why. Doctrinal debate gets you nowhere. It gets you nowhere. Doctrinal debate causes arguments. Paul deals with this. It's going to be on the screen. It's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of hearers. In other words, as people are listening you debate about doctrine, they're not going to follow Christ. Even if you win the argument, you've lost the person. He goes on to say in verse 23, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So what Paul says in 2 Timothy is this. Don't argue about words, about doctrine. Just humbly win them over. Just humbly win them over. Because doctrinal debate causes nothing but strife. It causes nothing but an argument. Let me tell you what else doctrinal debate does. Doctrinal debate prevents ministry. 
Let me give you a story. Mark chapter 9. Jesus comes down from the mountain transfiguration. There's an epileptic, epileptic boy, and he's on the ground going, doing his deal. He comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and guess what the disciples are doing? Take a look. Mark chapter 9, verse 16. Mark chapter 9, verse 14, sorry. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Let me tell you what doctrinal debate does. It prevents you from ministry. Here, this poor boy needs some ministry, but the disciples think it's best to have a doctrinal debate with the scribes. All it does is waste your time. Doctrinal debate prevents ministry, but doctrinal debate, let me tell you what else it does. It doesn't generate the character of the kingdom. In Romans chapter 14, the church was having an argument about if you can have a hamburger or if you can have a hamburger with a cheeseburger. And they wanted you let you know, <laughs> you better eat McDonald's cheeseburgers because those cheeseburgers were not offered to idols, but in and out cheeseburgers. <laughs> they were offered to idols. So you, be- oh, let me flip it, okay? Because some of you are mad that I just used in and out, okay? No, you can't eat McDonald's cheeseburgers because they were offered to idols, but you can eat in and out cheeseburgers. Someone say amen. You guys got the problem that the first century church had. That's what debate does. All of a sudden, I saw all, what are you talking about in and out for? In and out is purified by God. Doctrinal debate doesn't produce the character of God. And in Romans chapter 14, verse 17, Paul concludes the argument. He says, look, for the kingdom of God is not in eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Our conversations should produce righteousness and joy and peace. When people leave a conversation with you, they shouldn't be worn out. They shouldn't be worn out. And so Paul, he knows this. So in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, he tells them, stand fast in the Lord. Don't waver from the truth. The New Living uh, uh, translation says, stay true to the Lord. Now, let me tell you something. Staying true to the Lord is a very important exhortation, especially when you're emotionally on overload. Think of your strong fellowship with your spouse. How many of you have ever said something that you wished you never would have said? Bueller? Okay. We've had like three people raise their hand. How many of you have said something that you wish you never would have said? Thank you, Andrea, for raising your hand. <laughs> she knew I was going to call her out. I prepped her for that. Adonis, don't get upset with me, okay? It's important to remember this banner of faith. Stand fast in the Lord when we're emotionally spent. Because when we're emotionally spent, we have a tendency to forget this truth. We have a tendency to allow an argument with someone to compromise our character because we're hurt They didn't live up to our expectations or we didn't get our way. 
So we enter the place of compromise. But in that place, Paul says, stay true to the Lord. Don't give in to the temptation of this argument that's been caused by doctrinal debate. Now take a look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. I implore Yodia, and I implore Sintiche, and I just did a little spin on it. You can say Sintiki, you can say Sintish, you can say whatever you'd like. I got a little Sintiche, okay? So you just go with whatever you want. To be of the same mind in the Lord. All right, let's back up a little bit. You're sitting in church, and everyone is so excited We just got a personal letter from the Apostle Paul. And everyone gathers. And you got to remember, these letters were written on scrolls. And Paul exhorted in another letter, I want you to read these things publicly. So everyone has gathered. And everyone is there. And they have put out the scroll. And they're just reading it in front of anyone. And the whole church has gathered as the scroll, scroll is being unfurled. They're just reading line after line. Now just imagine you're Yodia and Sintashe. Just imagine this for just a moment. The scroll's being read and the Spirit's speaking to you. And Yodia starts thinking, well, I haven't been really affectionate. And Sintashe, she starts going, well, I haven't really been merciful with Yodia. First of all, don't name your child Yodia in the first place. I mean, <laughs> and so they're like, a, got a little conviction that's going on within their hearts. And they're sitting there and they're listening to the sermon. And some of you, when I'm teaching or when a pastor is teaching, you sense that same thing. Like, okay. Me and my spouse did get in an argument today. <laughs> and uh, I can't believe he just said that. She must have called him. Now I'm even more mad at her. Like, I mean, I don't know what's happening in your heart, but you know what I'm talking about. When so all of a sudden the pastor is preaching and you start sensing some kind of conviction from the Spirit and you know what you've done is wrong. And you're so thankful. Oh, thank you, Jesus. This is between you and me. And you're convicted and you confess and you purpose to change. That's a walk, someone who's walking in the Spirit. You're responding to conviction. But this passage, it serves also as a warning. Just imagine, you're Yodi and Sintashe. You're sitting there listening. you got a little conviction going on. And you sense the Spirit speaking to you. And he's been speaking to you about this issue. You need to tell Sintashe you're sorry. But you choose not to listen to the Spirit. I'm not going to be nice to my husband because he's just a... And you fill in the own blank. I'm not going to do it. But you know the Spirit has been convicting you to deal with this problem. But you just simply ignore it. Be careful. Your fate could be similar to these two ladies. Imagine all of a sudden right now, I know your marital issues and I call you out by name in front of everybody. Like just imagine right now if I said, oh, if I was to tell you about Adonis and what she did today. Well, I know something about, and everyone's worried right now, Pastor Zach. So I told Pastor Zach that I was going to use him as this illustration. He goes, that's great. I'll get up and walk out. (laughs) And if he was about to walk out, when he walked out, I was going to tell you what he did, okay? (laughs) 
Now listen, can you imagine sitting in church and I call out your name? Think of Sintashe and Yodia. They're sitting there in the audience and all of a sudden, as the scroll is unrounding, uh, uh, unraveling, they hear their name publicly in front of the whole church. They had to be mortified. So I want to encourage you in something. Pay attention to the conviction of the Spirit when it's personal. Because he will do anything to get your attention. Pay attention to the conviction of the Spirit. Because he's got a job to do. And his job is to glorify Jesus in you. And he's going to speak to you one-on-one. He's going to speak to you personally. Listen to him. Listen to him. Now, it's interesting to me, Yodia's name means fragrant, and Sintashe's name means fortunate. Because Yodia's being a little stinky, not very fragrant, and Sintashe is not being very fortunate. She's bringing misfortune to the church. So they're not even acting up to their names. And let me tell you about church names. When you would get saved in the first church, you were given a different name. Joseph, who was called Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Simon, who was called Peter. Levi, who was called Matthew. It was a practice that Jesus put into the disciples that then they took into the first century church. And so, quite frankly, Yodia's name may have been given to her when she got saved. Oh, she is a fragrance of the Lord. Well, Yodia, you're being a little stinky right now. (laughs) I made the mistake, and I don't want any of you ever to do this. There was extra legroom by the bathroom in the airplane. Do not ever sit next to the bathroom in the airplane. I can't tell you the amount of hand sanitizer that I put on my hands and just waved through the air to try to change the stinkiness. Now, I'm sorry to make such a visual, but Yodi is being very stinky. And Sintashe is bringing a lot of misfortune to the church. They're not living up to their names. So what Paul does, look at, uh, if you would, Philippians chapter 4, look at verse 3. And I urge you also, true companion, you might want to underline that, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul calls on the church. And he says, I urge you, true companion. Now, remember what I said. The first church would get new names. This is actually a name, and his name is Syzygus. His name means true companion. So this uh, 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 um, translation is translating the meaning of some guy's name. He was someone that was found that would come alongside people and be their companion in the midst of trial. And he says, I want Clement. I want all my fellow workers. Let the whole church get involved with this problem. Because this problem was apparent to the whole church. Paul's calling something out that everybody knew, but no one was willing to deal with. And he doesn't take the time to say, well, Sintashe is right and Yodia is wrong. He doesn't care about right and wrong. Because let me tell you something. 
When you're in an argument, you might be technically right, but your attitude could make you spiritually wrong. Did you hear that? You could be technically right, but your attitude is making you spiritually wrong. And Paul's desire is to resolve this problem in the spirit. And look what he does. He reminds them that they labored in the gospel. Now that's important. Because what is the gospel? The good news of the gospel is that man is reconciled with God. And if we're ambassadors of the truth that God has reconciled himself with man, but we're at odds with each other, it threatens the message of the gospel. That's why Jesus prayed that we would be one. Because our unity displays the truth of God's desire with man. That, the, we, that all of mankind would be one with the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. He also reminds them of something else. That their names are written in the book of life. Look at your friend. Look at your friend and tell them, I'm going to spend an eternity with you. Go ahead. Now, get up. Listen. Get up and go to your enemy right now and tell them, I'm going to spend an eternity with you. Now, don't get up. Time and sit down. (laughs) I love how obedient my son is. I want you to put your Christian enemy in your mind. And I want you to spiritually say to them right now, I'm going to spend an eternity. Our names are written in the book of life. And let me tell you something. If your name is written, that means you've been forgiven. And do you know that if you don't forgive, your heavenly father won't forgive you? He reminds them you're forgiven. He says, forgive as God in Christ Jesus forgives you. This is a warning. Remind them their names are written in the book of life. Now, he wants the problem to be solved. And let me tell you why. Because problems with people can divide a church. I know a church in New York City that put a picture of the Garden of Eden up in their lobby. And Adam had a belly button. And the church split over whether or not Adam had a belly button or not because he was not born of a woman. Are you the belly button people or the non-belly button people? Are you a naval person or a non-naval person? Can you imagine the argument at the church meeting? He had a belly button. No, he didn't. He didn't imagine God watching the argument about a picture in a lobby about whether we argue over the most silliest things. And Paul knew that an argument can lead to division. And let me tell you how he knew. Because him and Barnabas had an argument. And him and Barnabas parted ways. Their argument was so destructive, it caused a division between two friends. So Paul says to Syzygos and Clement and all the fellow workers, can you help, keyword, can you help these ladies? And what Paul's going to do, and we're going to walk through them, he's going to give seven ways that help you solve the problem that you have with a person. He's going to give you seven. I want you to write them down. Number one. 
Number one, be of the same mind. Go back with me to Philippians chapter four, verse one. I implore Yodia, I beseech him, I'm begging him. Uh, verse two, I mean, um, I implore Yodia and I implore Sintashe to be of the same mind in the Lord. There's our first principle. You want to solve the problem with a person? Be of the same mind with the Lord. Paul has taken three chapters, have we already discussed in our review, to let us know the mind of Jesus is affectionate, comforting, and merciful. He's let us know that the mind of Jesus considers others better than himself. He's let us know that the mind of Jesus is humble and obedient. This is what it means to walk worthy of the gospel and be a citizen of heaven. And so we've got to come to the table and humble ourselves with the person we're having a problem with and approach the table in humility, not I'm right. How does that work in your marriage? How does it work in your marriage? I'm right. I told my kids growing up, there's two rules in my family. Number one, I am always right. Number two, if I'm ever wrong, refer back to rule number one. It doesn't work. We've got to have the same mind of Christ and be obedient to what God is calling us to despite what it may cost us. Why do we make such a big deal of forgiveness? Because we're hurt. And what we're choosing to do when we come to the table having the mind of Christ is we're choosing to lay down that hurt for the sake of being obedient and being unified. Number two, he urged others to get involved. You got to urge people. He said, listen, I urge you, Sizegus. I urge you, Clement. I urge you, fellow workers. Could you get involved with this problem? Do you know what Jesus gave us? You can read it later. He gave us Matthew 18 for a reason. Matthew 18 is that great message from Jesus that if you've got a problem with someone, go to them yourself. If they don't listen to you, take someone with you. If they don't listen to you and the someone, take the church with you so that you can gain your brother. Let me tell you why Jesus gave us Matthew 18. Because he knows if you've got more than one human being in the room, there is the potential for a problem. So he gave us a way to solve our problems. He gave us a way to bring about resolution when there's confusion. Because sometimes when you're in the midst of an argument... Emotion takes the better of you. And it's difficult to hear what the person is saying because you've already made up your mind as to where you're at and you're just mad. How many of you have ever heard that phrase, my blood is boiling? You ever heard that phrase? You can, some of you are like, mm-hmm, in fact, it happened today. Listen, you feel it coming from your feet. And then all of a sudden, your heart starts beating out of control. And then it's like you could lift up a car. You are so angry and so upset. Anyone ever been there? Now, I'm your pastor. I've never been there in my life. I just want you to know. So if you raise your hand, I'll judge you, okay? We've got to be careful when we're so emotionally charged. And that's why he's urging people to come in because people bring accountability and they bring clarity. 
So when you're not hearing what the person is saying, you've got the accountability of your emotions because someone is there, and you're gaining clarity because someone is there. But I want you to see who he asked to be there. He asked spiritually mature people to be there. He asked someone who's got the name True Companion, someone you can trust. He doesn't go out into the street and bring anybody into this problem. He brings a leader in the church, Clement and Syzygus, and people that have labored in the gospel. He picks the people well that he wants to come into the problem. And he says, Syzygus, someone who's known to be in relationship with these ladies, can you help them? You see, Paul was not afraid to deal with the problem, but it seems like this church was. And so Paul calls them out publicly, and he says, listen, here's why I'm doing this, because you're not doing it, and you need to deal with this problem. Bring others into it when you can't solve it. Number three, take a look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. He erupts, rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. Remember the song? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Rejoice. And again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice. You guys don't know this song? All right, we're going to learn it. Okay, here we go. It's simple. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Some of you guys are not singing. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. All right, you want to do something fun? Here we go. You guys are going to start it out, okay? All right, and then you guys are going to go. Ready? Here we go. Loud. Ready? Rejoice in the Lord. Again. Rejoice in the Lord. Sing again. Ready? Now keep going. Rejoice in the Lord. Ways. Rejoice, rejoice. Okay, wait, they messed it up. It's around. You don't remember the 1980s? Everything was around. You remember? Thou, O Lord, thou, O Lord. 1980, I'm telling you, everything was around. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, this is the second time that Paul brought this up. Take a look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, Philippians 3.1, for me to write the same things to you, it's not tedious, but for you it's safe. It's safe to start here. Because let me tell you why he brings this into the, the mix. We've got something to rejoice about. We've been forgiven ourselves. There was no way for us to get to heaven. We've been forgiven. You see, in order to understand what he's trying to get across, you've got to look at the conclusion of this section to understand his point. Would you look down with me at Philippians chapter 4? Look at verse 23. Look at the conclusion of this section. He says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You see, God's grace was found in the fact that he sent his son so that we can be forgiven. This is something to rejoice about. He's asking us to rejoice in the great grace of God, in our salvation. Let me tell you something. 
We were enemies with God. Enemies. And Christ died for us. What grace. So we sing rejoice in the Lord to remind them of the joy in their salvation. Now let me ask you a question. What's the alternative? Bitter? Ever been around a bitter person? Ever been around a bitter person? They're just mean. They're just ornery. I mean, they're just rude. Bitter. I mean, even the word itself, bitter. It's like, you're a bitter person. And we use bitter to describe horrible things. Like, it's bitter cold. Have you ever been in bitter cold? Bitter cold hurts. Like, I lived in Montana. It's bitter cold, okay? You can't even turn your car on in Montana. The key switch is frozen. I had to put a hair dryer on the key switch just to turn it, the car on. It's bitter. You don't even want to go outside. It's so bitter. I don't know how many times I can say this word, and you get the point. Some of you are, like, bitter that I keep saying the word. What's the choice? Bitter? I'll tell you a story. It's in 2 Samuel. You don't need to turn there. There's a guy, his name is Ahithophel, okay? Ahithophel. Let's call him Phil, all right? <laughs> Give him a short name. David has been taken out by his son Absalom. So David walks out of Jerusalem. Absalom walks in. And Phil was David's vice president. Okay? He was his vice president. All right? Phil decides, I'm not going with David. I'm going to help Absalom. So King David goes, I'm done. Phil is like the wisest guy in the world. So Phil, he says to Absalom, hey, here's how you can defeat your father. But Absalom doesn't listen to Phil because God has got his little secret agent by the name of Hushai right there in the mix. So Hushai gives a different advice and Absalom decides to go with Hushai, not Phil. You know what the next verse in the Bible is? Phil goes home, puts his house in order, and kills himself. Hangs himself on a tree. Phil, are you kidding me? He didn't take your advice so you went and hung yourself? You don't figure it out until later in 2 Samuel. Phil was Bathsheba's grandpa. And Bathsheba got hurt by David. Bathsheba's husband was murdered by David. And for 20 years in that palace, Phil was thinking, how am I going to get back at David? And when he had his opportunity for his bitterness just to pour out on David, and Absalom didn't go with it, he killed himself. And let me tell you what bitterness does. It destroys you. So you can stay mad at that person, but Paul says, no, no, no. Rejoice in the Lord. Protect yourself from bitterness and think about your salvation. Number four, look at Philippians chapter four, verse five. Let your gentleness be known to all men, the Lord as his hand. Number four, you can write it down. Let your gentleness be known. It's Philippians chapter four, verse five. Now this word's important. 
This word is the word forbearance. And let me tell you what forbearance, forbearance means. It means plan ahead to bear with people. That's what it means. Plan ahead to bear, and not just people, to all peoples. Can I tell you something? You people are hard to deal with. Do you know what? Ask Dorothy. I'm hard to deal with. I went and visited Dorothy in the cafe the other day. Dorothy, you changed my life on Sunday, by the way. I just want to let you know that. I love you. Ask my wife. She deals with me all the time. Now, ask me. I live with this brain. You only get it twice a week. I go to sleep with it. Forbearance. We got to plan ahead to deal with people. Because people will always bring, and he says, not just some people. He says, be, let your gentleness, your forbearance, be known to all people. Because whenever there is people in the mix, there is a potential for a problem. And Paul is being so practical. And he's saying, listen, plan ahead to deal with the problem of people. In other words, take control of your emotions in everything. So that when you've got a problem with the person, you've already put into practice taking control of your emotions. Pastor Zach was a professional football player in Europe. I don't know if you know that. That's, he found out about our school of discipleship, Patmos, while he was in Europe. He left Europe, came to our school of discipleship, and God bless him, he's been stuck with me for 11 years. So... Where was I going with that? I got stuck on the, he stuck with me for 11 years. Here we go. So Pastor Zach played soccer, football, European football, and he went to practice. If he didn't go to practice, and one day he just said, I'm going to show up to the championship game. You know what his team would say to him? Go home. You haven't come to any practice. You're not physically fit you're not going to be able to even run across the soccer field. Go home, dude. Like, you're going to hurt our team. It's the same thing spiritually. We can't show up to the championship game of a problem with a person and not have to put our emotions in check throughout the course of our life thinking we're going to win the game and we've never put our emotions in check throughout the course of our life. So we've got to purpose to go to practice and put our emotions in check each and every day. So when your stomach says, you better feed me, and you get hangry, you tell your stomach, rejoice in the Lord. I'm not giving in to you, you hangry, evil, fleshly person. (laughs) And when your wife comes home, and you've had a long day at work, and she goes, you didn't take the garbage out? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Put your emotions in check so that when the championship game of life shows up, you've already put into practice what you need to win. Now, this is the heart of Christ. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Take a look at the screen. Now, I, Paul, myself, And pleading with you by the meekness and forbearance, gentleness of Christ. Forbearance is a character of Jesus. Do you remember when he said to the disciples, how long will I bear with you? This is not a question. 
In the first century world, when someone would ask a question, they were actually making a statement. It's like when my wife will call me and say, can you stop by the grocery store and pick up milk? She's not asking me a question. She's making a very clear statement. You will stop by the grocery store and pick them up. What am I supposed to say? No. How many husbands you've said no, and that went over great for you, okay? How long can I bear with you is a statement of Jesus saying, I will bear with you. And the proof of it is in John chapter 13, the testimony of Jesus is that he loved them. He loved them to the end. He bared with them. You see, this is the heartbeat of forbearance. Number five, he says, the Lord is at hand. This is important. Because in the first century world, this phrase was used often. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16, you'll see it on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. Take a look at this in James chapter 4. He says again, James, excuse me, not James chapter 4, James chapter 5. He says this, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And it seems in first century Christian world that this was a warning to the church. And when it's used, it's attached to putting on some character of Jesus. In other words, what he's saying, Jesus is coming, so start acting like it. Jesus is coming at any, his return is imminent. And if we live in the fact that Jesus' return is at any moment, none of us would want him to come and catch us in the midst of our sin. How many of you want the last trumpet call of the church to come and you're in an argument with your wife? I can't believe. How many of you want to be in the foyer of the church? And you're upset because we use those little portable communions and we don't pass the plate anymore. Let me tell you why, okay? We're saving the church's money, all right? That's what we're doing. We're being responsible with the widow's might. Well, I don't like it. (laughs) And I can't believe that you do, 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 do. In and out. Or McDonald's. <laughs> Just imagine Jesus catching you in the midst of it. Because if you're living in the Lord's return, you're going to live in what he told us to do. You're not going to be arguing. He says, listen, be busy till I come. You're going to be busy about advancing the kingdom of God. You're not going to get distracted with whether or not we pass the communion plate or we use the portables. Andre and I have been married for 28 years. I can't remember one of the arguments that we've had. Now, we've had them. But I can't remember what any of them were about. And sometimes we make a big deal of no deal. We make a big deal of no deal. And I wonder, maybe we ask ourselves first before we let the emotions fly. Why am I having a thousand dollar response to a dollar question? All she said was, 
have you taken out the garbage? Why does this bother me so much? Because maybe if you check yourself, you won't have a problem with your spouse. And maybe if we just ask ourselves a question, why am I having a $1,000 response to a dollar question? We can actually stop a problem before it happens. Now, let's take a look at the next one. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. He says this, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard, keyword, your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Number six, pray. Pray. The Holy Spirit is very aware that there are going to be people in your life that will cause problems and affect your heart and affect your mind. There are going to be people that will make you sad. They will hurt your heart. There are going to be people that you will think about through the night. So much so, it'll actually give you anxiety. So God, I believe, has allowed these people in our life to test us to see if we actually do have unconditional love. And let me give you a hint. Don't ever pray for unconditional love because God will give you the most problematic people, okay? It's like praying for patience. You will get stuck in traffic, okay? Now, I'm not saying don't pray for unconditional love, but just prepare for it, all right? And here, he says, listen, let me tell you something that will guard your hearts because problem people are God's quickest way to get you to change. That's why he said, love your enemy. I'm using this person in your life to teach you you've got a long way to go in regards to unconditional love. I'm using them. So Paul says, I want you to pray. And whenever those emotions start boiling up in you, whenever you've got a problem with a person, let it be the red light on the dashboard of your life that says, quickly get to your knees in prayer. Now, this concept was not new to the church. Remember what Jesus told the church, the disciples. You've heard, hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy, bless them, pray for them, and do good to them. And so what Paul does is he gives us the manner. He expands what the Lord said, and he gives us the manner that we should pray. And he says this, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. This word supplication, it says, I'm trusting God that he's the answer to my problem. He's the answer. He says, when you pray, pray with thanksgiving. Now, let me tell you what thanksgiving does. This is the attitude of gratitude that gives us a different perspective about the problem. And when we go to God with thankfulness about what we're walking through, he begins to change our perspective. And the other word that he uses is the word request. Now, we're going to camp out in this pray for just a little bit longer. Because a request is the manner by which we specifically give the exact nature of our problem. How many of you pray like this? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. When I was 11 years old, I went to my mother and I asked her, what is a now I had no idea. 
Is it a nowalater? Like, what is a nowalami? And she goes, no, 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 Chet. Now I lay me. And I said, well, why do we have to talk like Yoda to talk to Jesus? Now I lay me down to sleep. And what a tragic prayer to teach a child. Now I lay me down to sleep. If I should die before I wake, I, pr- I was terrified to go to bed every night. I'm like, will I wake up? Will I not wake up? Like, God help me get through the night, you know? I mean, I can't believe we taught this to our kids. Um, I told you before, I, when I would pray, we, I grew up in a traditional church. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Why are we talking about the past of Halloween in heaven? I couldn't believe it. I thought Halloween was such a heathen holiday. Thankfully, at our church, we redeem it, and it's called Harvest, and we're going to have thousands of people here to give them the gospel. Now, here is the truth. When we pray, pray with meaning. Pour out your heart to God. He's not afraid of what you're thinking. He already knows what it is. Don't go to God with these vain ramblings and babblings, and you don't even know what you're saying. Well, how many of you really mean, dear Jesus, thank you for the day? Or is that just your greeting to God? It's like, hey, how are you? Do you really care how I am? Because I'm doing terrible. Oh, no, you're only supposed to say fine, and then we move on. Dear Jesus, thank you for the day. Are you truly grateful for the day? Or is it just something that comes out of you because that's how we start in prayer? He goes, no, no, no. When you make a request, be specific. Know what you're praying for. And he says, listen, pray about everything. Bring every request to God and worry for nothing. Now, prayer is very practical at that point. Because when you get into the communion and connection with the Almighty God, you begin to realize that your problem is not so big after all. He's got this. Now, this is a key point. He says, when you pray, listen, church, make your requests specifically known to God, not the devil. Prayer is reserved communication for you and God. Prayer is not communication for you with the devil. Be careful when you're talking to the devil. People that have talked to him have not fared well. May I mention Eve? And people will be in prayer with me, and then all of a sudden, and devil, you get out of here. I stop them. Because I ain't going to talk to the devil. I literally stop them. And let me tell you why. Because I'm not going to give the devil God's divine qualities. He's probably nowhere around. He's probably in Australia because he's not omnipresent, but you think you're so important that he's at your house. And we'll go to God in prayer, and instead we'll talk to the devil. He's not omnipresent. Now, let me help you understand. The only thing that we should talk to the devil about is the truth of the word of God because that was the example of Jesus. When the devil came at him, he took the lies and he communicated the truth of the word. That's what we communicate to the devil. But prayer is reserved for God. And let me tell you something. Prayer is different than thinking. 
Our requests are to be made known to God. Just because you're thinking doesn't mean you're praying. And if anxiety is building up, you're thinking too much and praying too little. So if you're in the midst of anxiety building up, you're thinking you're not praying. It's time to get on your knees. Charles Stanley says this, the quickest solution to any problem is the distance of your knee to the floor. Now let me tell you what prayer does. Prayer guards your hearts and minds. And this word guard, it means a sentinel. And the sentinel's responsible to sound the alarm. So what happens in your spirit is your spirit sounds the alarm to your body and your soul. Watch out, the devil is coming after you. So when your soul gets so emotional, prayer sends out the alarm, be careful. And when you get so mad, you're going to punch through the wall, prayer calms you down so that you send an alarm to your body, don't do something dumb. I'll never forget my first year of marriage. Andre and I were in some strong fellowship. We never argued. We had strong fellowship. <laughs> and I was going to walk in the room, and I was right. And she knew it. <laughs> oh, poor me. I was wrong. And I walked in the room, and there she was on her knees praying for me. Let me tell you something about that woman. She never says to me, you better change. She goes to God, you change him. (laughs) Now, when I walked in that room, how do you get upset with a woman? Dear Jesus, I just pray for my husband. Do you just walk in and go, I can't believe you're praying for me. (laughs) No. You go in, I'm out. Sometimes we enter into debate with people when we should get to God in prayer. It will protect you and give you a peace of God that surpasses understanding. Now, can I tell you who is the peace of God? His name is Jesus. And let me tell you what the peace of God is. He gave his life for you. You were at war with God and he reconciled you to God. That's the peace of God. Now, let me tell you something. Who would die for their enemy? That blows my mind. That's what he's saying. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding. Like, can you believe that God would send his son to die for you when you were an enemy? And what he's saying to the church is, Jesus has set an example for you. And though you think it's unfathomable, die to yourself and be like Jesus. He concludes it with this, and here's where we close. Would you take a look? Finally, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, Whatever things are of good report, if there's anything virtuous, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Let me tell you what Paul's saying. Number seven, write it down. Keep your mind on Jesus. Who is more true than Jesus? 
who is more noble than our king? Who is more pure than the perfect lamb of God? Who is altogether lovely than our Lord? Who alone is most excellent and worthy of our praise? Paul is telling them, in the midst of your argument, keep your mind on Jesus. Church, I know because you're a person and you interact with people, I know that some of you, if not all of you in this room, have a problem with a person on this earth. Paul just gave us seven ways to help us resolve that problem. Now you have a choice. How will you respond to the Spirit? Now you have a choice. Because next week, the Spirit's going to give me your name. And if you don't do it this week, I get to call you out. No, I wouldn't do that. I might, but I wouldn't. Listen to the Spirit. Respond to Him. He has your best interest at heart. Would you pray with me? Our Father, I'm just so thankful for your word. It's so practical. And my prayer is that as we hear the truth of your word, that we respond. We'd respond. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.